Masha Allah, Masha Allah. Welcome to SwissCast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. I'm your host, Brother Suhaib Webb. Hope you guys are doing good. Sliding into this Wednesday morning. And some people hit me up and they're like, hey, 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 weren't you supposed to be sliding into Tuesday morning or late Monday night? What's going on? Well, I was on the road this last weekend and you know subhanallah man life teaches you something the quran says very beautifully that in yourselves are signs that will lead you to the certainty of god so won't you think about it and ponder and one of the things i've noticed as i get older is you know i just don't recover like i used to i could hit the road back in the days i could hit the road and do three or four cities different lectures, talks, speeches after Fajr. But as I've gotten older, that recovery time, that decompression time um, is a little longer. And I say that because I had an amazing, amazing trip this weekend to Duke University. And this is going to kind of lead into what I want to chat with you about today as we talk about the 2020 series and strategies for like navigating 2020. And we see already the Iowa caucuses, right? Things kind of out of control and concerning. And, you know, here we go again, right? But I um, I was at Duke, man. I was in, uh, in North Carolina. And I received this invitation from Duke probably six or seven months ago um, from their Muslim Student Association there. They're, they're incredible. They have a great, great program, great chaplain, Chaplain Joshua Salam of Native Dean, who many of you may know. But it was the strangest invite that the invite to Duke was like, we just want to hang out. Like, that's the invite. It was like, you know, the local communities, some of the local mosques would like it if you could do a few talks here and there. But as far as we're concerned... We just want to like socialize with you. So me and my team were talking about it and we were like, wow, this is such an interesting invitation. Let's just check it out. And I'm going to be honest with you. When we look at invitations, we like to see how well thought out things are and how unique ideas are. So this was kind of different. So I went there and I, I did have to give uh, one speech in the evening on Friday evening, which was fine. And of course, the Friday sermon. But then the rest of the time really was just like hanging out with them. We did something called escape room. I don't know if any of you have done escape room. It's fun, man. You should do that. It's, it's really cool. Do it with your wife. Do it with your kids. Do it with your husband, whatever. Do it with a local youth group. Um, it builds It builds a lot of, uh, a lot of you know, communication skills and the ability to kind of work together and strategize and you got like an hour to get out of this room and then you go to it well you got an hour to get out of like three rooms actually and you got to break these locks and follow kind of this mystery it's really fun and then we um we went to see bad boys forever which was a disaster uh, unfortunately um not a very good movie but like we just hung out we hung out in the afternoon and just like chopped it up in like their little MSA house, the brothers and sisters. So I actually, you know, we all come from kind of different situations. Hold on, my wife's FaceTiming me. 
check this out. Assalamu alaikum rahmatullah. Welcome to Swiss Cast. How y'all doing? She thinks legit. She is so her her smile. <laughs> so my daughter is trying to jump on the show. Hold on a second. We'll have to come right back. So mashallah. Special guest appearance by my wife and my uh, my youngest daughter. And you know, we continue to talk and then suddenly we get into the issue of cleanliness. Yeah. That, that needs to be ingrained in her. White people don't teach their kids to be clean. She is white. <laughs> and then from there, I actually bought my daughter some books, and one of them is Brown Bear, uh, but the Arabic version, which is a different remix. Ma Vatara Brown Bear Brown Bear What do you see? And something about being in a interracial marriage is that you learn like different cultural kind of nuances. And one of the things I didn't know um was like this idea that cute babies are to be eaten as a metaphor. So like freaked me out when when my wife was pregnant. One of her relatives was like, I just can't wait to eat this baby. And I was like, huh? What's wrong with you guys, man? White people don't know how to show affection. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> I wish someone would eat my ears. I wish <laughs> someone would eat my ears. She loves it, though. Like, the, when Shidi was kissing her last week, she yeah. was literally smiling. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It does, it, does, it does take you to another level, though, for real. <laughs> God bless our families, man, you know, and bless our children and protect all of them. So as I was saying, um, Duke, right, in MSA, get this very interesting invite, not a lot of programming, more of a, a social kind of visit, and it was perhaps one of the best MSA visits I've ever had. MSAs do a lot of great work across the country in spite of having a very weak, centralized kind of presence uh you know it tends to be more almost like a, of a federalist hyper federalist model but um it was incredible so as i was saying towards the end of the visit i started to feel like you know because we all tend to go back to patterns as being a source of our security and um i started thinking like wow like I really blew this visit and uh, I really like messed up this trip. I didn't do enough and started to kind of feel bad. And then I, I got this letter from one of the one of the girls there. Um, one of the sisters there, the young sisters, brilliant. And, you know, it was really long. And in, in it, she said something that 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 struck me. And that was she said, your visit was actually like more important and more beneficial to me than having you come and like give speeches and talks like which tends to be kind of the normal thing and the reason she said was and man that duke education woo mm. she said i was able to see islam 
seamlessly woven into like social fabric. It wasn't curated, right? So when we're giving speeches and we're teaching, right? It's very curated. She was like, this was like the opportunity. And we have to be honest that usually, unfortunately, sisters don't have the opportunity to mingle with the guests, especially male guests in the way that, that men do. So this visit was different because we were all together for most of the most of the visit. And she was like, the ability to see Islam woven into social settings that are uncurated was very powerful and reaffirming to me because now I can see that Islam is more than just, say, the pulpit. And that, that really hit me. And I began to think afterwards on the flight home um, about important things that have happened in my life. And oftentimes they have been moments with people and experiences with people and not necessarily like in a very curated religious setting. You know what I'm trying to say? And one in particular that's going to lead in kind of the discussion that I want to just share with you today as we think about 2020 and some strategies for 2020 and beyond. And by no means am I saying that these things haven't been done, right? Tajdeed is different than tabdeed. Tabdeed means to completely ignore the past and try to start like on a fresh slate. Tajdeed is to kind of reaffirm foundations and, and make sure that we amplify certain foundations that may have been neglected. Um, but I recall my last day in Al-Azhar. I, uh, I was leaving Egypt. I was coming back to America. This is 10 years ago. And um, I decided, you know what? I'm going to go to Masjid Al-Azhar, sit, reflect on the last seven years, and see you know, what I can learn from, from just kind of reflecting, introspection. And as I got to the Masjid, um, I was dressed you know, in the Azhari outfit and stuff. And I sat down and this man came to me and he was a falah. It's like a guy from the country. And uh, he said to me, you know, are you like a sheikh? And I was like, nope, I'm a student. He's like, but you're wearing like like you're wearing like the clothes of, of the sheikh. And I said, no, you know, I'm wearing the clothes of a student. And then he said, la la, you know, you're a sheikh. I know you're a sheikh, right? So he's like, Bus in the soil. He said, like, you know, I need to ask you a question. I said, I can try to help you, but again, like, I'm not, I'm not that guy. So he said to me, uh, why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say, Ming Shadri, Ming Shadri? He said something to me, Where did the noon go? <laughs> right. Um, so we call huruf ikhfa there are certain letters that in the Quran in the art of reading the Quran cause other letters to the noon in particular that n sound to be hidden so he was asking me for those of you who aren't muslim and may be a little lost here there's a sound in the Quran there's a letter in arabic that sounds like noon like high noon afternoon and that letter noon when it's followed by certain letters can be hidden so like min you hear the noon min sharri in the Quran, min shari. So this guy was asking me, 
Where is the noon? Why don't we read the noon? Because like in any other Arabic literature, you're going to read the noon. This is unique to the Quran. So then I began to answer him. And he said to me, before you answer, I have a request. This is the last conversation I ever had in Masjid Al-Azhar. And I said, yeah, sure. What, what's the request? And he said, don't answer me bi uslub shuyukh. Don't answer me like the religious scholars and teachers answer people. I said, and I, I, you know, that time I was young and just completing my education. So that was something I felt. I took offense. Unfortunately, I wasn't wise enough to temper my, my uh, kind of cathartic reaction. And I said, what? And he said, yeah. He said, don't answer me like religious teachers answer. And I said, man, what's wrong with you? And he said to me, because the way they talk, mushma'ul, we can't understand them. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, yeah, the way, the way those guys answer questions, we don't understand. So I said, okay, I got you, I got you. Your question is, me and Shari, where's the noon? He said, yeah. So then I said, qala imam ibn jazari fi matnihi. Then I started to give the typical answer. And he said to me, no, 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 that's what I mean. Don't, don't answer me like that. That's what I mean. That I don't know who even Jezari is. I don't know who this scholar is. I don't know who that imam is. Why, why you got to do all that? I just want to know why we don't read the noon. And I got angry. So I said, Hakada Nuzilat. Right? That's how Allah sent it. That's how God revealed it. And he said to me, Mashi. That's all I needed to know. That's what I want. And got up and walked away. I learned something. Imagine, man, this is my last interaction with a human being in Jami'i Al-Azhar after seven years of acquiring some basic knowledge. And I learned something that day. And that is, it's very important to meet people and teach people in a way that is comprehensible, and relevant to them and most importantly is truth so truth coupled with being contextualized and then speaking to the issues of the person without that if we if we take any of those out without truth we lead people astray without it being contextualized we limit the ability for people to understand the truth right and the prophets lead to the prophet is sent to make things clear to people and then number three, when it's not tied to something which is um, relevant to their lives and valuable, then they're not going to see the value prop in truth. So as we move into 2020, one of the things that we have to be careful of is not speaking to the issues of the people around us. And there's a lot of challenges to that. One is that if we if we speak to the issues of the people without being tethered to the truth, we're no longer speaking truth. We fall into like moral moral relativism, right? At the same time, if we strictly speak truth how we understand it and don't um, tie that to things that are important to people, they're not going to find the value in in Islam, right? 
in our religion. And we all sit on the shoulders. This is Black History Month. We sit on the shoulders of Malcolm. And what makes Malcolm so important to people is that in many in, in to many people, Malcolm supersedes religion, right? Malcolm is is a is a, a metaphor for truth, but oftentimes is beyond even the Muslim community, right? He's someone who cared about his people, about black liberation, right? So oftentimes we find in the Muslim community two extremes, right? We find people who will want to be accepted. And we've talked about the dangers of like an Islamophobic West that makes us thirsty for friendship, thirsty for allies. And that thirst sometimes can cause us to be more concerned about social, political, and economic utility than speaking the truth. That's a problem. Another reaction to that is let's just cling to our truth and not worry about other people. Like, let, let's just do what we do. And I've actually heard people say that before. Like, hey, let's just focus on our institutions and focus on our mosques and not, not get caught up in stuff. There's these challenges, right? And both of those are a failure to really uphold the mizan that Allah says in the Quran. Allah fil mizan. Don't break the balance, the balance between truth and proclaiming the truth. So, what I just wanted to share with you, and, and we can continue this discussion um, moving forward for a few episodes, is how the Quran does something remarkable. It speaks to the community of the Prophet specifically, right? The Arabs of the 7th century. But then also packed in the Quran is this ability for it to be continually reapplied to different cultures, di different circumstances, and different people till the end of time so that it maintains its truth and it maintains its marketability, if you will. And I mean that in a way that's not like tied, to, of course, to like marketability in the sense of like economics, in the sense of it's able to, to touch hearts. So, for example, if you look at the end of the Qur'an, it's remarkable. Um, you find in, in numerous places things that happen that, that force the Arabs to tie the message of Islam into cultural issues. So, so for example, like trade and business is something really important to the Quraysh. So, look how the chapter starts. That, that lamb is called like Alhamdulillahi. But here it means something different because it comes in a response to something. Because in the Arabian Peninsula, one of the things that was considered remarkable is like, how are the people of Mecca so cosmopolitan? How are the people of Mecca able to maintain any type of economy when they have nothing, right? Uh, Sayyidina Ibrahim, Prophet Abraham, describes Mecca in the Quran as wad in ghayri the zara'in, right? Like it's it's a, a valley which is barren. There's nothing there. So one of the things that ancient Arab poets used to be amazed at is like the ilaf of the Quraysh, like the security that they have. So it's almost like the chapter starts in a way that's like, we know that you're talking about this. Right? 
so it's like in response to like a social issue like people are like yeah the ilaf of the Quraysh the ilafi Quraysh the ilafi Quraysh and then the chapter comes and says li ilafi Quraysh yeah what you're talking about and then ties the security of the Quraysh to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the presence right the presence of the sacred mosque so you see it, it touches on something that's popping in the barbershops of the Arabian Peninsula, if you will, in the seventh century. Uh, other issues that were, were of importance to them were like the, the idea, and this is interesting in, in Arabic poetry, there was a style where a person would like mention the, the kind of the, um, the scenes of where they were from without saying like their 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 actual location so like they would talk about the landscapes that were unique to their their area in the arabian peninsula um some of the different type of ruins very similar to like sometimes if you listen to like old school hip-hop right someone's talking about brooklyn they mentioned like flatbush ave they mentioned brownsville Someone's in Harlem, they mention like 125th, Willie's Hamburgers, right? They're going to mention like spots that are unique to that place, right? Very similar in ancient Arabic poetry, like Imr Qayyis, he's an old poet, he says, Qifa nabki min dhikri habibin wa manziri bisikhti liwa bayna dakhuli fahamari dakhul wa hamal are like these two hills that Imr Qayyis is saying like, this is my hood, like I'm from this area where there's Dukhul and Hawmal. Like, he's saying it. So this is something interesting. So look, look, look. This is talking about three different prophets, right? Prophet Jesus, Prophet Moses, Prophet Muhammad But instead of saying their names, it mentions the, 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 the you know, the settings from which they came. That's something that the, the Arabs could relate to. So you see there's an issue of like security of people, social issues. Then there's this idea of like an aesthetic value that touches the culture of the Prophet Sallallahu community. And then uh, another is like, Al-adiyat actually is an adjective for something which isn't. And this happens in Arabic a lot. Sometimes an adjective is mentioned without the noun that it describes to make the, the listener stop and think. And of course... What it's talking about is camels, right? Again, like the camels are the Bugatti of the Arabian Peninsula. There are even instances we'll talk about later on where the Quran uses non-Arabic words to show like its universal potential. But what I want us to think about now is the cultural backdrop, the social backdrop, the economic backdrop, even the political backdrop, if you go through the Quran, you're going to find different references that speak directly to what those people were experiencing in the time of the Prophet and then is able to tie that to a relationship with faith. If we look at ourselves in America, whether convert or otherwise, how are we utilizing cultural raw material, political raw material, economic raw material, political raw material. And we see Muslims doing this, but as a strategy for calling people to our faith. 
And if the attitude towards culture and the attitude towards even the West is one which is hyper-negative, then that is going to impede the ability for a person to engage. And that's why sometimes when I talk with Islamic schools, I say to them, as someone that has that background in education, is the philosophy of your school incubation or preparation? Because incubation is not going to get you anywhere. And my brother, scholar, Dr. Zahir Ali, who specializes in Malcolm X at the Brooklyn Museum here, Historical Society, always tells me that historically in America, there have been three type of religious uh, groups. Two didn't survive, one survived. The ones that didn't survive are those that completely assimilated or those that completely, completely went for isolation. But those in the middle that navigated, those that navigated were those that succeeded. So what I'm getting at is how the, the, the later part of the Quran touches on al-adiyat, right? Those, you know, what's like popular, like a Bugatti, right? Was 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 camels, right? Li'ilafi Quraysh is touching on like social phenomena and political phenomena, security and safety. Um, and then even the ascetics, right? The art of the community is used where... You know, this is the type of reading of the Quran we need people to engage in. A much more critical and constructive engagement of the Quran. Not one that just looks at the Quran as a book of ritual or a book of the past. Um, now, if we're going to think about this, there, there are numerous examples where prophets would use even spiritual phenomena religious phenomena that may be considered wrong and falsehood, but used it to teach people. And, and Al-Razi, uh, Allah mentions very beautifully in Surah An'am, you know, Sayyidina Ibrahim, when he was calling his people to faith. And it's very important sometimes Muslims misunderstand this and they say, well, this is before Ibrahim was a prophet. That's not the case because Allah says, Right? Allah says, this is a proof we gave to Ibrahim to use against his people, meaning to disprove their arguments. So obviously, if Allah gave it to Ibrahim at that time, he was a prophet, and then he was using it to open up his people's minds. You know, a brilliant teacher doesn't have to only use what he or she believes to teach. He can even use his adversaries' positions to teach them something. Right, that's that's the art of a teacher. So we see that Ibrahim, and this is also the foundation for Imam Kalam, and the approach of Imam Kalam and Aqidah is not only to use the verses of the Quran and Hadith of the Prophet, the traditions, religious traditions, but also to use the backdrop of the world to teach people about faith. So Ibrahim, he doesn't he doesn't even use truth necessarily in its pure sense. He uses falsehood to teach them truth. Allahu Akbar. And how does he do so? He says to them, you know, Right? When when the night set in and became extremely dark, the stars became bright, and Ibrahim said, oh, the stars are my Lord. So he's using now falsehood with the goal of teaching them the truth. We're going to talk about the conditions for that later on because I know this immediately is going to set off some antennas. But just just, just walk with me for a minute. Let's walk in this path. Ibrahim is a prophet. He wants to teach his people about the temporality of the world, about how God is beyond the temporal, how God is infinite. So what does he do? He says, look at the stars. 
So they look at the stars and he says, that's my Lord. And then when the stars faded and changed, he said, I don't, I don't, I don't love things that like, meaning I don't worship. And here it's, it's beautiful, right? Right. I don't worship things that set, but the word love is used because the height of worship in Islam is rooted in love. Remember this. There's a lot to take from these verses. Allahu Akbar. So we want to inspire people to love. Right? So Sayyidina Ibrahim is saying, I don't love these things that set. He's teaching them something, right? Then the next thing they see the moon. Bazigan. Hada Rabbi. He said, That's my Lord. And then when the moon fades away and it ex it exposes its temporal reality, said, I don't love that either. Then they see the sun. It's brighter than the moon and the stars. And then, of course, the sun sets and he says to them, What? You know, inni wajahtu wajahi lilladhi fatara samawati wal ardi hanifa wa ma ana min mushrikeen. I turn myself to the creator of all these things, the one who is beyond the temporal. The one subhanahu wa ta'ala who's mukharifatu lil hawadith, right, is in opposition to the temporal things, things that have a beginning and an end. We say al-qidam wal-baqa, right, Allah has no beginning, al-awwal wal-akhir. But the point here is how Ibrahim is able to get down in the trenches with people and use their jahiliyyah to take them to the truth. So as we move into 2020, it's very important that we think about what is the value prop of our faith to the people around us? Not just that we guide them to Tawheed, because as many scholars have said, not all the Sahaba became Muslim because of issues of faith. Many of the Sahaba became Muslims because there was a social, economic, political, and cultural value prop associated with Islam. And over time, they learned faith. Faith is a process. And we look at the story of Sayyidina Ibrahim. And there are conditions for this that I'll talk about in the future. Right now, I want you to think a little, right, is that he uses people's falsehood to take them to the truth. One of the conditions, of course, is that this doesn't sacrifice someone's practice, right? So I can't go up in a club and start drinking alcohol and saying I'm trying to teach people the truth or I can't I can't engage in something evil, right? Which is like physically a process of me physically doing evil. Here we're talking about thicker in an idea. The second condition is that I have to make it clear later on that this thing is wrong. So he exposes right that this falsehood is wrong there's there's some things that could come out of this but the point is if we don't engage right to the point that we understand some of the negative issues of society then we can't use people's jahiliya to teach them the truth and that's why subhanallah man the role of the convert and it's concerning when you look at many of the mosques across the country and many of the nonprofits. you don't even find converts running the convert programming Right. The converts aren't even around. Converts are kind of like the buffalo soldier in the community. They're not they're like the free. They're running free. And this is crucial because we each complement one another and we each give insight to one another. and We each give eyes to one another. 
The challenge with this also is that the attitude towards culture sometimes is, is problematic. Either it's complete ingestion or complete rejection. But look look at Surah Al-Baqarah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Allah created everything in the heavens for you and the earth for you. Imam Al-Baghwi says, right? For you and for your benefit. And from that, there's a very important principle that Islam takes that allows us now to think about as we move through 2020, engagement in a nuanced, uh, disciplined way, not one that leans towards irrational uh, acceptance or complete rejection, right? Both of those are a challenge. And, 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 and what this verse is touching on is this point, which Imam Asiyuti says is one of the five major axioms of Islam, that the origin of all untexted acts is permissibility as long as they are seen as being beneficial. Right? And it's not harming people, it's not you know, causing people any type of physical, mental, spiritual harm, right? Or harming their hereafter. So, you know, using an iPhone, right? Um, using things online, so many things are going to be considered permissible. But the point is our default for engaging things which are yet to be researched and, and, and given a ruling is permissibility. So now we're unleashed to engage and be part of the world around us and spread the beauty of our deen. I'm going to stop here because I don't, I don't want to give a lot at this time. I want us to slowly unpack this. But what did I talk about? I talked about how this invitation to Duke MSA was very, very eye-opening because they just wanted to hang out. And then the letter that this young sister wrote saying, listen, like this was more impactful because we're able to seamlessly see how Islam works within like social settings without it being curated, without it being overly produced and edited, right? And that took me into this important issue of moving into 2020 and thinking about engagement between two extremes, right? And the reason that engagement is important is that engagement oftentimes cannot be curated. And we see the Quran engages the economic, social, political, spiritual, religious setting of the Arabs in the seventh century. And then we give the example of Prophet Ibrahim salam, Abraham, who can even take people's falsehood and use it to teach them truth. And then I ask myself and you, what are we working on to be able to do that within America, if we're living in America or wherever we are? What, what familiarity do we have with people to the point that we can synthesize our religion with what they're experiencing. You listen to Swisscast, always a pleasure. Barakallahu feekum. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.